church. We want to examine what they taught and what they believed about who God is. We want to align ourselves with the apostles and what they taught because they give us representation of what's true about our faith. And that's ever more important in our culture today um, because, sadly enough, if you were to walk on the street and find an average Christian person that claims to be a follower of Jesus, if they were stopped by, let's say, an atheist or an agnostic and they were put on the spot, what, is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Tell me right now. The average person probably wouldn't be able to do it. They would probably stumble through and maybe say some true things, but there's been such a lack of spiritual discipline in our culture today, a lack of biblical theology and doctrine that most of us have just really been given what our parents believed. We call ourselves Christians because our parents grew up in the church and we grew up in the church too, so we're Christians as well. But the sad reality is most of us, maybe not in this room, but over the culture, um, doesn't know what they believe. So our first reason behind this series is to give you something to stand on, to give you something that if you're stopped by someone, you can say, this is what it means to be a Christian, and you know that what you're saying is true, that you're not just making things up on the spot. But secondly, and I think more importantly, the reason behind this series is a time for self-reflection, right? So we can say we believe all of these things, we can play this intellectual head game and conjure up facts and say these things out loud, but what does that mean if you say, I believe, and you don't live out the implications of what that is? And so we want to talk about those things so that our life aligns with what we say. Because someone can, an unbeliever can come to you and say, well, you say you believe this, but your life looks like this. Those two don't match. And we don't want to be a people that can easily be said, you're a hypocrite. We want our lives to align with not only what we say we believe, we want to live that out. We want that factual stuff in our head to travel what's 18 inches from our head to our heart. We want it to move from here to here so that way we live like we say when we say, I believe. We want it to look like that. So if you want, and if you can, stand with us, and we're going to recite the creed together as a church. Read it with me. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So we have a ton to get through this morning. Um, Bob texted me, Uh, about a month or two ago and told me the section of the creed that I was going to be speaking on this morning. And I instantly was like, Bob, you sure? Like, you want me to do this? Because there's a lot of, I mean, this could be six or seven individual sermons and I have to do it in like 35 minutes. So we're going to just fly through this stuff. I wish I could spend a lot more time on it, um, but we can't. I'm limited by time. But I'm just going to be honest real quick before we get into this. I'm known to kind of go over time. And so 
I'm going to use the kids that are in this room since they're staying. They're going to kind of be my time clock. If they start getting rowdy, I know I've talked too long because I just, that's just what I do, okay? I'm going to confess my sin to you. Um, so the section of the creed that we're going to be focusing on this morning is, on the third day he rose again, he ascended to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. All right, so again, there's a ton here. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask that practical question of, okay, what does it mean that he rose? What does it mean that he ascended? And what does it mean that he is seated at the right hand of the Father? But then we're going to say, okay, now we know that. What, what is our life supposed to look like after that? Okay, and so we're going to pray before we get into this just so that I can focus because there's, there's a lot here. So if you guys would bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truths that are in the Apostles' Creed. God, we know that the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture itself, but that it points us to your word, and your word is true. And Father, I pray that you would anoint me right now. Give me your Holy Spirit so that I can speak your words and not mine. God, I ask that I would decrease and go low and that you would be lifted up and that when we leave this place, people have a clearer understanding of who you are. Not what I do, not what I say, not what I can talk about, but that you are who you say you are and that they can walk out of this room confident in what they believe and not fear that they don't know what they're going to talk about. So, Father, I pray that you be here in this moment. Um, be with me. Guard me from error so that I don't speak falsely. And, again, open hearts in this room to have ears to hear. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, <clears throat> the first line of the section of our creed is really nothing new, right? We all know the story of the resurrection. Every Easter... We set aside time to ponder and imagine the mystery of the empty tomb, right? And so this morning, I'm not going to really dive in too deeply into this, because I believe the two following parts of our creed really give us the context for the resurrection. But I don't want to just skip past it, because it is rather important. I mean, deeply important for our faith. And I would, no one in here, if you're bold enough, would say that you don't believe Christ rose from the dead, right? No one? Okay. Really good. Um, because if you were to be a person, and there are these people, like this does exist in our culture, that people that say that Christ did not bodily rise from the grave, right? Our, our Muslim friends believe this, that Christ didn't really die, he didn't really rise. If you believe that, you would be outside of authentic Christianity, and you would have really no authority, no accuracy to call yourself a Christian any more than, let's say, Amos called himself an NFL player because he wears a Chiefs jersey, right? Like... <laughs> doesn't make any sense. So the resurrection is, is very crucial to our faith. It's like at the foundation of what we should believe. <clears throat> but I don't want to get into the evidences of the resurrection, right? We can sit here all morning until we're blue in the face and talk about the historical evidences for the empty tomb, right? And there's a ton of information out there, but I want to focus on why did Christ rise from the dead, <clears throat> And I feel like that's more a more important answer. And so that's what we're going to talk about is why did Christ raise from the dead? And there are multiple biblical reasons, but I want to focus on what I believe is the most foundational, okay? And this is what I believe is foundational to why Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that his life and his work on the cross would be vindicated and that the sal and salvation would be purchased for sinners who would turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone for his perfect righteousness. I'm going to say that again. 
Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that his life and work on the cross would be vindicated and that salvation would be purchased for sinners who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ alone for his perfect righteousness. And so that word vindication, who knows, raise your hand if you know what the word vindicate or vindication means, other than my wife who's heard me talk about it this week. Right, we had one hand. Okay, that's what I expected. Um, Vindication is essentially to show that something is true or to show that something is right and trustworthy, right? And so the resurrection is what vindicated Christ's life and work on the cross. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, why did Christ's work need to be vindicated? I mean, didn't he really show he was who he said he was? I mean, he did all these miracles, right? He walked on water. He fed 5,000 people, like, just like that. I mean, that's enough, isn't it? But I think we need to ask ourselves, let's, let's put ourselves in the mindset of the religious leaders of that day. Why did they, and I'm going to ask you, why did the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, actually kill Jesus? Who knows? Like, what did they bring him up on? What charges did they bring him up on to kill him? Yes, blasphemy, right? They didn't kill Jesus because he claimed to be the Messiah, right? Every Jewish person who knew their scriptures knew that a Messiah was promised, that a Messiah would come and rescue the people of Israel from their sins and the wrath of God to come. They all knew that. But why they killed Jesus is because Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. If you could, go ahead and turn to Mark 14 for me. And we're going to be all over the Bible today, so might as well keep that thing open because we're going to be flipping all throughout it today. Mark 14. And we're going to be in verse 61. And I'm sorry, I didn't give you what number or what page it was in your pew Bibles. That's my bad. So Mark 14, starting in verse 61, says this. This is Jesus. He's brought before, before the religious leaders, and it says, And the religious leaders and the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus Christ said, I am And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do you need? You heard his blasphemy. And so the religious leaders didn't care really that he called himself the the Son of God or no, that that he called himself that he was going to come and be the Christ, right? They had a problem when he aligned himself with an Old Testament prophecy in Daniel 7, which we'll get to in a minute. He was called himself the son of man. And it, tore, and it caused this man to rip his clothes and yell, this man is committing blasphemy. They couldn't imagine that God would come in the flesh. And so this is why they eventually put him on the cross. But the resurrection, when he rose from the grave, showed that everything he claimed about himself was authentic and true. There has never been a man in the history of time that rose himself up from the grave. We know Lazarus was raised from the dead, and another girl, um, another little girl in the New Testament was raised from the dead. But they were raised by the power of God. They didn't raise themselves. Jesus Christ rose himself from the dead and proved and vindicated his claims that he was 
the Son of God, and that he was the only way to escape the wrath that was coming on the people of Israel and on us. Now, I wonder if you don't feel the importance of the fact that the resurrection holds this much power, I wonder if you would ask the question of what happens if the resurrection didn't happen? What does it mean if Christ stayed in the tomb? So if you could, flip over the first Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Chapter 15, starting in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says this very clearly. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul is making it very clear that if Christ is still in that tomb today, you and I are not forgiven. And the faith that we claim to have in this whole Christian thing is a waste of time. In another part of Scripture, he calls us the most to be pitied if Christ didn't rise from the dead. So I hope you begin to see the magnitude and the weight that the resurrection carries. It's what gives us our faith today. If he's not out of the tomb today, there is no payment for sin. And you and I are stuck with our sins and no one's there to pay for them. We have to come to God before, or we have to come before God with our own sins. Paul essentially is saying that we're just all screwed if this doesn't happen. We have no hope in the life to come. And Al Mohler, he is the, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He had this to say. If you want to go ahead and put that up. He says, the literal, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the vindication of Christ's saving work on the cross. The issue is simple. No resurrection, no Christianity. Leave that up there for a minute. No resurrection, no Christianity. Guys, without the resurrection, the sting of death remains on us. If the resurrection didn't happen, our sins are not forgiven, and the wrath of God still abides on us, and we have no hope in the life to come. But the glorious news is that Christ did not stay dead. Christ is very much alive today. And for all of us who have put our faith and trust in him, he gives us his righteousness. And we are able to come before the throne of God completely forgiven. It's finished. There's a, I listen to a lot of spoken word poetry. And um, this one artist called Propaganda is his name. He had this poem called The Gospel. Um, there's a video on YouTube that's really popular, and a lot of people have seen it. But he said this line about the resurrection. He says, he wrote a check with his life. And at the resurrection, we all cheers because that means the check cleared. So you guys understand that reference, right? We know how checks work. You write a check, you pay for something, and the check doesn't automatically pay for what you're purchasing. The bank has to make sure you have the funds in your account or else if you don't, the check gets bounced, right? So Christ wrote a check with his life at the cross. And then three days later, God accepted his payment and credited it to anyone who had put his, their faith in Christ alone. So when we say along with the apostles on the third day he rose from the dead, we are believing that Christ is not dead, that he is alive, and that he is who he says he is. And he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one 
comes to the Father but through him. He is the only way to have reconciliation with God. And as I was studying for this, I didn't really have a creative way to transition between that and our second part of the creed, so we're just going to get into it. Like, I didn't have, like, a joke or anything, so we're just going to, like, go right, right to it. Um, so the last section of our creed, that he ascends and he sits at the right hand of the Father, I don't think occupies our mind very much. You could take that down, Brandon. I don't think it occupies our mind. I mean, how many people, sorry, I'm sweating, raise your hand if you thought about the ascension and the seating at the right hand of God this week? How many? Past two weeks? Okay, we got one hand? Okay. Yes, sir. Past month? Six months? Okay. Okay. Well, you have, yeah, you have the prepare up here too, so that doesn't count. I'm just kidding. So you can see, we don't think about this aspect of Christ's life a lot, maybe not at all. And go ahead and put the next one up, Brandon. This is what Pastor John MacArthur had to say. He says, the greatest event in the life of our Lord and the triumphant, he's talking about the ascension, and his triumphant finale to the end of his life is probably the most neglected event in the life of Christ. It is impossible to think about the, resur- or to think about the crucifixion without the resurrection, and it really is unthinkable to look at the resurrection without moving immediately to the ascension. Rarely do we consider the greatness of his leaving. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. We're going to enter this usually empty space of considering the greatness of his leaving. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Acts 1 for me. It was Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the next book is the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Maybe I should turn there too, shouldn't I? Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood, stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now, just for a minute, put yourself in the shoes of the apostles right now, okay? So 40 days prior to this event, they watched their beloved teacher, friend, and Lord be betrayed by one of their own, watched him be put up on false charges of blasphemy, beaten, mocked, maimed, crucified, and killed. They witnessed this with their very own eyes. And at that point, they thought all hope was lost. He's gone. They took him down, put him in a grave. And then three days later, they themselves witnessed the risen Christ. 
Christ came to them and said, touch the holes in my hands, touch the hole in my side. I'm as real as you are. He was back with them. He stayed another 40 days or so with them, and then is just talking to them, and then randomly just ascends into heaven right before their eyes. I mean, could you imagine how, like, shook they were? Just, like, watching this all. I mean, the angel said, why are you staring into the sky? Like, they're just staring, like, standing there, not moving. Just, like, thinking of what the heck just happened. But again, you have to put yourself in the mind of a first-century Jew at this point. Because they knew their scriptures. They knew that this was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 7, right? So what does it mean for us 2,000 years later? What does it mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. But since, again, I'm bound by time, I'm only going to be able to go through two of these. I have like six, but as I was reciting this, I was like at an hour, so I had to like cut it down dramatically. Um, But I left the two that I think carries the most implications for our lives. Um, So number one, the ascension marks the beginning of of the kingship rule of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So this is the point where He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. Those two come together because he ascended to sit down. So, okay, what does that mean? I want you to go ahead and turn to Daniel 7. We're going to way back in the Old Testament. Daniel 7. We know that Jesus was not merely just—he didn't ascend into nothing, right? He didn't just disappear and then, like, went to go hang out at Mars for a little bit and then went to Saturn for a few thousand years and then, like, went to Pluto and was like, hey, bro, I'm sorry, you're not a planet anymore. Like, that's not what happened. He didn't ascend into nothing and went to do his own thing. He ascended to go home to his father. And let's read this in Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. This is the prophet Daniel, hundreds of years before Christ even came. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came a man like one of the Son of Man. So remember, he came up with with the clouds. And he ascended and came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom is one that should not be destroyed. It says that Jesus, when he sat down, he was given a kingdom, a rule. He was given authority, right? Do we remember what Jesus said right before he gave the, the apostles the Great Commission? What did he say? He says, all what? All authority has been given to me where? In earth or in heaven and on earth. It says all authority has been given to me, not just some authority, not just the authority you want to give him over your life, and then you think that you're going to hide something from him by keeping the rest, that Jesus, you don't have authority over this part of my life, but you can have this other section. It says, he says, all authority has been given to me. Flip over real quick. We're going way back. Ephesians 1 now. I told you, we're going to be all over the place today. Ephesians 1, because I want you guys to see this. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 19. I'll give you a minute to get there. 
I don't hear any kids screaming yet, so I think I'm good on time. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 19, it says, this is the Apostle Paul again. He says, and what is the immeasurable or what is the immeasurable are the riches of his glory and glorious inheritance in the saints? Oh, nope, that's not the right part. And what is immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, this first part of our creed, and seated him, parentheses, ascended, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He put all things, God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him the head over all things to the church, which is his body. So this is quite different from the real frail and wimpy Jesus that our culture portrays him as today. He's like this emotionally disturbed dude that like walks around and like is begging you to like love him. And then if you don't, like his heart's broken and This says Christ is king, whether you believe him or not. He's not just some guy that cooperates with you. He rules over you and I. I'm part of this. I don't want you hearing that I'm telling you and it doesn't apply to me. Like, I had to wrestle with some of this stuff this week. Like, he is king over my life and your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has full authority? I mean, really, that he rules over you and rules over everything else in this universe? If not, we're going to go somewhere else. Let's go to Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1. We're going to read to verse 5. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament prophets. But in this last day, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world, right? Jesus created the world in the beginning. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And I want to skip down to verse 13. And it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet? Like, that imagery is, is insane. It's saying that Jesus, by the power of his word, upholds the entire universe. I mean, when you go outside and you look up and you see the billions of stars in the sky, like, Christ is holding that in place. He's not just like he didn't billions of years ago throw it into, like he didn't start it and say, okay, now you guys go do your thing. I'm going to go. He's holding it there by the power of his word. He's not just letting things go crazy. He's holding things where they are. He says that all of his enemies are becoming a footstool under his feet. Like you guys have footstools in your house. Like you come home from a long day at work and you're ready to sit 
and you put your feet up and you put it on a footstool or you pop out your lazy boy thing. I don't know what that's called, the thing that comes out. Huh? Recliner. Recliner. Thank you. I have one of those. I don't know what it's called. Um, it's the same thing. It's saying that God, Jesus, when he ascended and sat on his throne, God was placing the enemies of Christ under his feet as a footstool as he sits and reigns. I mean, is, is that the Jesus that we all believe in? Is that the one you believe in? I, I had to do, a, again, a lot of wrestling with all of this stuff, that this isn't just some wimpy Jesus. This is a powerful, sovereign ruler who speaks and things happen. Now, I'm going to have to move on because I can talk about this, and that's only our first point. We still have another one. So I have to keep going on because I can be here all morning. So that was the first one, that the ascension starts his kingship rule at the right hand of the Father. And number two is that the ascension marks the beginning of Christ's high priestly ministry. So to begin to understand this, once again, we have to realize that this particular aspect of the ascension is completely wrapped up in Jewish history, okay? And so again, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of a first century Jew who knew their scriptures to know what this part of him being a high priest means for us. So we know in the book of Exodus, don't turn there um, because those chapters are real long, and if we read them, we'd be here for another hour. Um, In the book of Exodus, we have the account that God is giving the Israelites, the people of Israel, the sacrificial system, right? So this is God's appointed way to have the people of Israel's sins approved, or not approved, but atoned for during that day because Christ had not come in the flesh yet. So their sins needed to be taken care of somehow, right? So the people of Israel was instructed to build this thing called a tabernacle. You go ahead and put that picture up there, Brandon. I know I'm a visual person, so this kind of really like made a lot of sense to me. So they, God spent three chapters in the book of Exodus, which are like four pages long in the, for, in the Bible. That's real long on just how to build this. Like all the way down to the materials, the curtains that they used, the clothes that the priests wore, the, like everything had a specific meaning for the time and the day. And that back room, so you see that curtain right there at the very back, that part of the, t- the tabernacle or the temple was called the Holy of Holies. And that's where God would come and dwell and meet with the priests at the time. And that curtain was the only thing that was protecting anybody else that was in the tabernacle. Because if you weren't the priest and you walked past that curtain, you instantly died. Like, on sight, dead. And only the priest was given access to that part of the tabernacle. And so God gave us a high priest, or appointed a high priest at the time, and you could take that down, Brandon. Um, he appointed a high priest, and that priest was to be the mediator between God and the people of Israel, right? So he stood between in that space in between, and he was to make sacrifices on the behalf of those people. Every day, he had to continually make sacrifices for himself and for the people of Israel. And there's a really interesting note that I found while I was doing a lot of studying on this, is that there was not a single chair inside the tabernacle. Priests weren't allowed to sit down. So anytime they were there doing their priestly work, they had to stand, because in the Old Testament, a priest that sat said, my work, my priestly work is done. But the priest's work was never done. 
Why? Well, because he himself was a sinner. A sinner cannot make appropriate sacrifice for other sinners. His work was never done. So he even had to make a sacrifice for himself. He had to kill an animal and sacrifice it for himself before he could ever do anything with the people of Israel. And they were also bound by death. Priests didn't live forever. They died. So when he died, another one was appointed, and he continued the ministry. And it goes on and on and on, and this thing never ceased. In Hebrews 10, go to turn to Hebrews 10 for me. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews a lot on the, the end of this. Hebrews 10, you should already be there or close to it. Hebrews 10, verse 11. If I can find it, there it is. It says, And every priest, talking past, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for one, for all for one, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time of his enemies should be made a footstool for his seat or for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it says, they made these continual sacrifices without end, but Christ is our high priest. It says he sat down, meaning his earthly work to save sinners is done. He's done away with that old sacrificial system because he says, I am not only the lamb that was sacrificed, but I am the priest that now stands between you and God. Like he is your intercessor. Does anyone that's not in the legal world know what an intercessor is? What's the intercessor? Speak in behalf of or if you put it in the legal term, they would essentially be the defense attorney, right? So you were brought up on charges, and this defense attorney would speak for you and plead your case before the judge. And it says that Christ is our intercessor, meaning when we sin daily, we need someone to speak for us. And Christ perfectly stands in the place of where that old priest would and represents us perfectly before the Father. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean for the ascension? Pastor Jeff Durbin had this to say. And if you don't know who Pastor Jeff Durbin is, I'm just going to implore you to go home and look up this man. I mean, he is, is incredible. I could talk about him all day. Um, and so I had to see what he had to say on this subject. But this is what he says. Without the ascension of Jesus, without him being seated on his throne, receiving his authority and kingdom, without Christ as your intercessor, you have no plea before the throne of a holy God. None. We have no plea before him. But I just want to read, you don't have to turn here, but I want to read you the good news. In Hebrews 8, 8 8.1. It says, the author of Hebrews says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. You guys, if you are a Christian this morning, 
and your sins have been covered by Christ, you have an intercessor. You have someone that prays on your behalf. Did you know that, that Jesus prays for you? Like, how many of you would say, my prayer life isn't as good as it should be? Like, be honest. Come on. Okay, good. We're all, we've all been there. But it says, Christ prays to the Father on our behalf. Now, that's not to get you off the hook and say, okay, I'm just not going to pray anymore. Like, Jesus is doing it better than I did, so I'm just going to forget it. No, like, he prays on our behalf. Even when we don't know what to pray, he does that for us. He is our intercessor. He sits at the right hand of God. So, Christ was raised, he ascended, and he sits. And those are undeniable, irrefutable facts, right? But we are not here to play some intellectual gymnastics and fill our head with just facts about what Christ did. We want this to move in our life. Like I said, we want the truth to take that 18-inch journey from our head to our hearts so that way we live in such a way when we say, I believe he rose, I believe he ascended, and I believe that he sits, our life should reflect that. So I'm going to ask you, this is your chance to participate. How should our lives reflect this truth? If we say we believe these things, what should our life look like on a daily basis? And I'm like, Bob, I'm good with awkward silence, so I can sit up here for a minute. What does it mean? Yes. I think our walk should be like our talk. You know, they could see when we go out in the world, they can see what we're really feeling and doing. Right. So we shouldn't just be, we should practice what we preach. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Good. What else? What? Yes. Explain, what do you mean? <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. I, I know what you mean. I was just seeing if you were able to explain it. Yeah, so the fruits of the Spirit should be evident in our life, right? That we should look like we've been changed by Christ. Good. What else? Practically, in our everyday life, what, what should our lives look like? What should we be doing? What should we not be doing? Yes. Mm, yes. So we should be people that have thick skin, right? That people's words shouldn't just tear us down and we get offended. And this is something that I struggle with a lot because I deal with pride, if I'm going to be real honest with a lot of you. I struggle with pride a lot. And people's words and their criticism combats that pride and, and it hurts. But if we are to really say we believe in this, those words shouldn't affect me because I have a king who sits and I have a king who is ruling and what can man's words do to me, right? That's really good. Anything else? Well, I wrote down a few as, just, as I was thinking about all of this um, and we'll fly through these. This is just three of them um, and then we'll close. So if we say we believe that he was raised, that he ascended and that he sits, we, number one, we should be living bold lives of gospel proclamation without fearing anything. Now, I want to be as direct as I can, um, but do it in a loving way that if we say we believe 
this stuff and we don't share it, like if it doesn't move you to talk to your unbelieving friend, unbelieving coworker, unbelieving family member, can we really say that we believe this on a practical level? It hasn't moved from our head to our heart yet. Because if it's moved here, we know what Christ said about himself. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And if we have unbelieving friends, family members, whoever, that die in their sins, we know what happens, right? So this should move us in love to, to talk to our friends and our family members about who Christ is. And that's only possible if he ascended, right? And we've already talked about that he did. And so we should live bold lives of gospel proclamation. And this, I, I want to say, this isn't in my notes, um, but this was the one that I struggled with as well. Um, I won't get into this deep story, but I, I had a, a moment a few weeks ago where um, we had a family member that was really sick. And um, this family member had, we had not had the best relationship. Um, he didn't really like me because of how I looked, and um, I had a lot of resentment towards him. He didn't really like me. It was kind of an even playing field. I just kind of avoided him. And then I got news that he was sick in the hospital and that he probably wasn't going to leave. And as I've been preparing for this, that part of me, which I believe was the Holy Spirit, was saying, I, I, I sit, I rule. You don't have anything to fear against him. You need to go share the gospel with him because he was someone that has rejected Christ his whole life. And I was, you can ask my wife, I was so scared. Like, I, I was silent. The moment the Holy Spirit put that on my head, like, I was sitting on the couch just, like, not moving because I knew I couldn't, I couldn't ignore it and I couldn't disobey. But I'm like, how the heck am I going to get up and talk to this man I've not liked for since I've been married? Like, how? But I obeyed. And this is not me getting up here and, like, patting myself on the back. Because if you could have been there in that room, I was stumbling over my words. And in my head, I was like, what the heck am I even saying? Like, is he even listening to me? And a couple days later, I got a text saying that he had accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, again, this is not me bragging about myself. I really want you to know that because there was other people that talked to him as well. But if we believe this stuff, it should move you to do something about it, okay? And I hope that it does. So number two, that's, man, I'm probably way over time. Um, number two, if those things are true, we should be people marked by prayer. Um, and Brandon, could you throw the picture of the temple or the tabernacle back up really quick? So remember how I said the holy of holies was what separated the people on the outside of the tabernacle between God, right? Who remembers what happened the moment when Christ died on the cross? What happened to that curtain? It tore in two, right? Good job, Brittany. You get A+. Plus. It tore from top to bottom, meaning that there's no more separation between us and God anymore so that we can boldly pray and talk and commune with him because we have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf. So we should be marked by prayer. And then number three, and I'll end with this, is that if this is true and we say we believe it, we should be a people who would rejoice in the midst of immense suffering. We all know that as Christians, we are not free from suffering, right? Some of us in here have gone through 
horrendous things. Some of you have lost a child, lost a spouse, been a victim of sexual abuse, mental and physical abuse. Some of you have been victims of an adulterous relationship. Some of you have lost your jobs unexpectedly. Some of you might have lost your home at one point. I mean, the suffering is endless. You're, you're a new parent in the throes of a newborn, maybe dealing with a child that's walked away from the faith. Like th- The suffering in this room is probably infinite. We all have our own suffering. But because our Lord sits and he was raised and he reigns, God is not sitting back trying to figure out what to do with your life. He has not left you alone. He is with you. Now, you guys remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He was sold by his own brothers into slavery, right? When he got there, already enslaved, he was falsely accused of rape and then was sentenced to 10 plus years in an Egyptian prison. Falsely. I mean, he went through some horrible, horrific things. And then we know the story ends with him rising to prominence in Egypt and um, receiving an authority role in Egypt. And then he meets his brothers who did all of this to him. And what did, they, what did he say to his brothers who caused all of this? What did he say? Well, you don't have to turn there. But Genesis 50, 20, this is what Joseph said. He said to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about it that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So here's Joseph rejoicing in his suffering, saying, you guys meant it for evil. You did your evil, but God, with the same event, he meant it for good. So good, in fact, that what Joseph did in Egypt saved a ton of people during this famine. So your suffering is not purposeless. It is purposeful. God does not just give you something to leave you there. He's using it for your good, no matter what it is. And this is probably the hardest thing for us to really believe practically. But God, Christ himself, sits, and he's causing everything to work for your good. So if I could just read one more passage, and then we're done. We're going to go to Rome. No, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. We're going to go to Romans 8. Romans 8 has been dubbed the Great Eight for many a years because this chapter holds some of the most precious promises of God. I'm going to start in verse 23, and I just want you to sit. I want you to hear God's words to you, that if you are in Christ, all of these promises are for you. I'm going to start in verse 24, and you can close your eyes, or you can just sit and listen. Starting in verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we have hope, we have hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray, as, and we don't pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes. There it is again. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for, the, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those, for those whom he, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And here it is. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how, how will he not also with him give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is seated at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're a Christian, all those are true for you. Because he was raised, he ascended, and he sits. And I hope that when we say that creed, you say, I believe, I, I hope and pray that you believe and that you live that out every day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for these precious promises that say, if you are for us, who can be against us? We have nothing to fear in this world if you did rise, if you did ascend, and if you did sit at the right hand of the Father. Everything's been given to you. And God, I pray that when we leave this place, that these just aren't some things we say we believe, but that we live them out and allow them to transform our life so that we are marked by your ascension and your sitting and your rising so that we may be beacons of light in this world that is often always dark. So, Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray that it glorified you in some way. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.